Our texts this morning are two. The first from Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 22 through 33. And then the second from Genesis chapter 2. We'll read Ephesians first. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, Love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. And then to Genesis and chapter 2. Now, I actually had originally uh, put to start at verse 18. Um, and I was going to let that stand since Wally was going to be reading this morning, but I'm, I'm actually going to change my mind now, and I'm going to back up to, to verse 15, so it won't match for a, a few verses what's on this screen. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to all birds in the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and clothed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and 
we were not ashamed. Father, we beg you this morning that you would make your book live for us. For we are utterly dependent upon you. If you don't do something, it doesn't get done. And so we ask, Lord, that you do what only you can do, that you send your Holy Spirit forth, and as the man whom you have called stands before the people whom you have saved and speaks the word which you have spoken after you, you somehow enter into that process and you minister to the hearts of your people. You create change. You correct us, uh, sometimes even sharply. We need the correction. You encourage us. You comfort us, and you train us in righteousness. So, Master, speak. Thy servant heareth, waiting on thy gracious word. Amen. Well, sorry, I'm a little discombobulated this morning. It's been a a rough week, so you pray for me. That'd be really helpful. I'd appreciate it. Last week, I uh, attempted to make the case uh, to you that the three persons of the Trinity are absolutely equal in every way, and yet they delight to interact with each other as if they are not equal, that that's their freely chosen way of being together in relationship, that the Father commands the Son, even though the Father and the Son are completely equal. And the Son delights to obey the Father. And the Father and the Son together send the Spirit, and the Spirit refuses to do His own will, and the Spirit refuses to speak His own word. Instead, the Spirit delights to exalt the Son, and the Son delights to glorify the Father, and the Father will exalt the Son in whom He is well pleased, And we have this eternal, glorious dance within the persons of the Godhead where they defer to one another even though they are equals in every way. And then I showed you Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28 where God says to human beings who are made in His image, male and female, and all kinds of races and all kinds of classes and giftings and abilities and situations. He says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, human beings, naturally speaking, are not equals, not in lots and lots of ways that actually count, and that's just a fact. Strength and brains and drive and opportunity and resources, they don't come equally to all. But in Christ, there is a fundamental spiritual equality and only in Christ. And this is important. The basis for our equality is spiritual and supernatural. The distinctions of nature are not obliterated by our spiritual equality. Instead, the abuses that sinful men and women use the inequalities of nature to exploit 
are perpetuated by sinful men and women. Those, those things are, are done away with amongst the people of God. So it's not that all of a sudden God flattens everybody and we're all the, the same. It's that God leaves us with our varying abilities and callings and differences and things like that and says, those, I'm going to make those into something beautiful. And I'm going to make everybody in the end deliriously happy that they are who I made them to be with all the different gifts and with all the different abilities. In other words, things among us in the church are to be reordered so that among us, relations among people are put back right in the way that they would have been if our first parents had not fallen. That's important. What God is after in the church is a repair and a restoration of his original state of being plus. And remember that I've said to you in the past, salvation simply isn't about heaven when you die. It's about God bringing a people together and transforming them in such a way that they become what Adam and Eve and their offspring would have become had our first parents not sinned. Now here's something that you probably never thought about. Even in heaven, there will not be what our left-leaning friends in American culture call equity. Even in heaven. That is, there will not be equality of outcome. And we have that from the very lips of Jesus himself. So in Matthew chapter 5, for instance, Jesus speaks. And he says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there will be some people who are called great and some people who are called least. In Luke chapter 7 and verse 27, we read, something quite similar. Jesus says in Luke 7 and verse 27, talking about John the Baptist, this is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. There it is again. There's a least in the kingdom and a greater in the kingdom. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6 and verses 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, uh, it's, heaven is like your IRA, and there will be some who make the maximum contribution and get to enjoy the benefits of that maximum contribution in retirement, and there are some who are neglectful and make only minimum or intermittent contributions. And when they get there, they will have less. 
In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, we find out that, that uh, we're not only laying up treasure for ourselves, but, but we're creating outfits for ourselves. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So some of you are going to be wearing Armani, and some of you are going to be wearing Walmart. And that's okay. Walmart will be fine. You won't be unhappy with Walmart, but some people are going to be more finely dressed. Why? Because they did on this earth more righteous deeds. You're storing up for yourselves for your eternity. So some will have better clothing. So, so Jesus, in other words, and, and we find out, for instance, in the parable of the talents, some people get to rule five cities, some people get to rule ten cities, and some people are in a lot of trouble. Right? So Jesus was not a neo-Marxist. Jesus did not believe in equality of outcomes, even in heaven. Now, will those who are higher up be lording it over those who are called less in the kingdom of heaven? Absolutely not. Will John the Baptist be smarting with envy and jealousy that the person who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he? No, he will not. Will the one who has amassed more treasure or has dressed themselves in better linens because of their righteous deeds be snobbish to those who have less treasure and less fine clothes? No. And why not? Because in heaven, pride will be gone. And with it will go arrogance and lording it over other people along with the envy and the jealousy which go along with wounded pride, which is at least as wicked and destructive as lording things over others. I can't count the number of times in the church where somebody has wounded pride and it's just sinful pride and, and everybody tiptoes around them and we're told we need to make allowances for this person's wounded pride. No, we don't. We need to tell them to repent of their pride. It's a good thing that your pride is wounded. Your pride needs to be killed. It needs to be destroyed. And in heaven, it will be gone. And you will be delighted with everything as it is. And all of these things will be fixed. You see, our contemporary, in our contemporary social thought, which makes a fetish out of flattening certain hierarchies, um, it, it, we're making the same mistake that the people who wanted to eliminate, for instance, alcohol abuse made during the 1920s during Prohibition. We're making the same mistake that the gun control crowd is making today. The problem is not alcohol. The problem is not guns. The problem is not that some are richer or stronger or smarter or more powerful than others. The problem is the human moral character. And if you take away the alcohol or you take away the guns or you take away the wealth and the power, human moral character that's deficient will still find a way to work evil in spite of the fact that you took away the legal sale of liquor or you confiscated the guns, or the government redistributes all the income. Because the problem isn't those things. The problem is the human heart. God built hierarchy into the universe 
because he likes it, because it's good, because it exists even in heaven. Even the angels exist in a hierarchy. An archangel is the highest kind of angel, and there are very few of them, and they have great power and great authority, and they wield it on behalf of their God. And then below them are beings that are known in the scriptures as thrones and principalities and powers, and hierarchy existed before the fall on the earth. It existed before the fall. Do you think that if Cain and Abel would have been born before the fall, that they would have popped out of Eve fully mature and knowing everything they needed to know in order to fulfill their God-given purpose? Or would they need to develop and grow and learn? Well, of course they'd need to develop and grow and learn. They were babies. They were infants. And infants before the fall still needed to grow up. They still needed to learn. They needed guidance, which means that the fifth commandment isn't something that God thought up while Israel was wandering around in the wilderness. The fifth commandment was built into the fabric of the created order. And Cain and Abel would still have needed parental nurture and parental guidance and parental instruction even without the fall. And they would have been responsible to listen to it and to obey it. Now, here's the next bit of relevant information. Uh, we started, as I said, in, in, uh, in verse 15 rather than verse 18. Um, and and I, just, I just want us to look at this story in Genesis here. God makes the man. He makes him out of dirt. And then he plants a garden. He calls that garden Eden. And he fills the garden with every delightful tree that is good for food. There are, I'm told, we're told gold and precious stones are in the land out of which one of the rivers flows or through which one of the rivers flows. Many scholars believe that the reason that the temple in ancient Israel was bedecked with gold and precious stones is because the temple was supposed to be an ongoing representation of the Garden of Eden where man met with God and walked with him in the cool of the day. If you want to unpack this for yourself in a more fulsome way, it's a bit of a scholarly book, but you can handle it. There's a book by a guy named J.I. Fesco or John Fesco. It's called Last Things First. It's really good. He just goes, he goes to, to Eden and he says, okay, look at Eden. And then he goes to Revelation and he says, now look at the end of things and all the promises that God makes throughout the scriptures concerning the end of days and the restoration of all things. And he says, there's a correspondence here. There's God's at work doing something in, his, in our ultimate salvation that harkens back to the first two or three chapters in the book of Genesis. It's, it's fascinating to me, for instance, that among Orthodox Coptic Christians in Ethiopia, the churches must be surrounded by forest gardens. And these forest gardens are specifically meant to symbolize the Garden of Eden. And both the church and the Jewish temple are places to meet with God and be reconciled to him and learn to walk with him as it was in Eden. I think that, that these, these pictures are just fascinating because when I look at that, friends, that is a visible representation of the church in our day. It's this oasis of life where things are as they're supposed to be and as they used to be. And then you look all around, and it's desert. 
And isn't that how it is for the worldlings and the church? The church is the only place where human relationships have at least the opportunity, at least the potential of operating as they should operate and as they will operate when the fullness of all things comes. And then out in the world, what is it? It's dry, it's gritty, it's hard to scratch out a living, it's painful. The church, the people of God, that's where all the good stuff in this fallen world is happening. And until we get our act together and start sort of living in the, the wonderful greenness of what we've got, the world, the, the desert, just keeps encroaching. And it keeps shrinking all the goodness. We've got to push it back out. Our job is to push the garden out until it takes over the world, not sit back and watch the world nibble away at the church. So God puts the man in the garden, and he puts him in there to work it and to keep it. One of the things that teaches us is that work, even though it has been cursed in the fall, work is not itself a curse that you and I were made to work, that God is a worker, that there will be work to do in heaven, and it'll be good work, and it'll be pleasant, and it won't be like, like anybody ever work on a car, and it's supposed to take a half an hour? Dean, are you here? Dean's not here. I know Dean knows this. We're supposed to take a half an hour and six hours later, you're ready to throw your wrench across the garage because nothing will behave and you just broke off another bolt? That's the curse. But that's not work. Work is good. And God made us to work. And so he puts the man in the garden to work it and to keep it. And here we have our first good hierarchy in the scriptures. We have God who gives the man whom he has made a command. In other words, this is easy. God's on top, man's down here. And God says to the man, you're supposed to do something. Or rather, you're not supposed to do something. And this is an easy one. The, the life of man rightly ordered is a life where God commands and man obeys. Now that is not clear to some of you here today. God commands and he's got a lot of commands and you're to pay careful attention and learn them and understand them and know them and then you're to obey them because he's God and God commands. And we go, yes God, we obey. The life of man ruined by sin is a life where God commands and man does not obey. And then he sits around crying, wondering why it's desert everywhere, why everything is not going right. Well, it's because God commanded and he knows how your life should run and you didn't want to obey. And so things go wrong. And God gives this command, from every tree in the garden, you may eat, Adam, except this one. If you eat of it, Literally in the Hebrew, it says, dying, you will die. In other words, there will be an event that happens right at that time that is a kind of death, and then there will be a series of events that will lead to another kind of death. Dying, you will die. Now, how many people are there on the whole planet at this time, right now? There's just one. There's just Adam. There's Adam alone, and Adam gets the command. That's going to be important. In a minute. And God said, 
It's not good. This is the first time in this whole series in Genesis 1 and 2, it's good, it's good, it's good. Here's the man. Not good. It's not good. What's not good? It is not good that the man is alone. I will make a helper who is fit for him. The word translated fit as in, I will make a helper who is fit for him, is an interesting word in Hebrew, and perhaps the best way to explain it is um, one who corresponds to him. Man is first in the created order, and in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for first and the word for head or leader is exactly the same word. The firstborn son had privileges and responsibilities that the ones born after him did not have. He would become the head of the family. So Adam's priority in creation, the fact that he was made first, gives him authority and gives him leadership responsibilities over everyone who would come after him. But Adam is not adequate by himself. Adam needs something. Adam needs a helper. And in particular, Adam needs a helper who is exactly fitted to the places where he is weak that this helper would be strong. One who is strong where he is weak. Adam needs someone who can help him manage and help him accomplish the task that God gave him to do because he's not up to it on his own. And then... We have this strange interlude. God says, it's not good that the man is alone. And then all of a sudden, God starts dragging every animal he can find in front of Adam. And he brings the animals to Adam, and he says, now, name it. Name each one of these. Now, why does God do that? Well, God does that for two reasons. Number one, God wants Adam to be prepared for this great gift that he's about to give him. To name something in biblical terms is a prophetic act. It's to recognize that there is a God-given inward nature or, 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 or being, or even in a, in a geographical location, in a place, that, that, that there's a God-given inner nature, and to give it a name or a label that sums up its essential character is to name it. And so, for instance, you have... You have these interesting little vignettes in the Old Testament where they, the, the people of God in their earliest days go somewhere and they have an encounter with God and then they name that place because something incredibly important, significant happened there. And so that place has a spiritual importance and that name recognizes that spiritual importance. It's the same thing with people. And we see in Scripture people being renamed. Abram, which means my father, was renamed Abraham, the father of many. Simon was named Peter, which means a rock. Saul was renamed Paul, which means little or small. Apparently, when he was Saul, he thought he was a big shot. And so God says, well, I'm, I'm going to remind you every time somebody speaks your name, you aren't a big shot anymore. You belong to me and you can be appropriately small. And so God renamed him small. 
Now, the naming of the animals is our second example of hierarchy and authority in the world before there was sin. Part of Adam's creation mandate was to have dominion and authority over every creature of the earth. And naming each kind of creature is recognizing that creature's nature and therefore how to wisely interact with it and care for it. Naming is an act of authority. But in that act, Adam realizes that he's deeply, deeply alone in the world. And the scripture says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so Adam then begins to see his need. Adam begins to see the weaker parts of him. Adam begins to see the need for someone else. And then God causes a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And God takes a rib from his side. And he makes that rib into the woman. And he closes up, says the scripture, the place with flesh. There's a, a wonderful old Puritan commentator. You can find him on the internet in many different places. His name is Matthew Henry. And if you, have, if you, just, if you want to have some fun, just get your Bible and then get, uh, open up Matthew Henry's commentaries off the internet and just read what he has to say about the scriptures. It'll, it'll take you a long time just to get through a chapter. But it's just, if you can get past the old English, it is just gorgeous. It's so deep and so good. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this whole thing of taking the rib and making it into a woman. He says, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal to him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. Adam lost a rib, and without any diminution of his strength or comeliness, for doubtless the flesh was closed up without a scar, but in lieu thereof, he had a helper meet for him or fit for him, which abundantly made up for his loss. What God takes away from his people, he will, one way or another, restore with advantage. So Adam lost a rib, but God's going to do some really cool things with that rib, and Adam's not going to miss that rib at all. And then what does God do next? He wakes Adam up like it's the first Christmas morning, and he brings this creature whom he has created out of Adam, and he says, what is her essential nature? Adam? What are you going to name her? And what does Adam say? I love this. You, you, you walk right past this if you're not careful. What does Adam say? At last. At last. God, you brought me every kind of bird, every kind of bug, every kind of cow and horse and lizard, all the rodents, that you could find, you drag them out for me to name, and it has been a long, long slog through all the beasts. And frankly, God, I was getting just a little bit tired, but at last, 
at last. Here is bone of my bone. Here is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. She is his equal. She was taken from his side. He is her head, however, within the covenant of marriage. Why? Because he was first in the created order, because she was made to help him in his inadequacy for his God-approved tasks. And then he looked upon her and he named her. The three things which in this unfallen, pristine world show that the husband had authority over his wife even before sin showed up in the world. Now, maybe some of you are sitting out there thinking, I don't want to be someone's helper. That's an insult to my dignity. That's an insult to my potential. That's an insult to my personhood that I would be made to help someone. Well, I can invite you to turn to your Bible, in your Bible, to the book of John in chapter 14. And let's see how that thought bears up under the scrutiny of the scriptures. John chapter 14 and verses 15 through 17. Jesus speaking, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be with you. And then go forward just two more chapters to John chapter 16 and verse 7. Nevertheless, says Jesus, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. If it's good enough for the third person of the Trinity, why do you think you're better than he is? If the Spirit, who is equal to the Father and the Son, and doesn't work his own will, which means he has a will, and it's distinct from the Father and the Son, and he doesn't speak his own word, which means he has words of his own that he could speak. He's delighted, and the Father and the Son exalt him precisely because of his character and because of what he does. He's delighted, and God exalts him. To be a helper is to imitate God the Holy Spirit. It is to say, and to say that I'm too good to be a helper is to sound an awful lot like Lucifer in a falsetto voice. Right here is the crystal clear proof of headship and submission within the context of a fundamental equality where there is no sin yet in the world, just like in the Trinity, just like in the heavenlies, just like among the elect angels. This, loved ones, is part of what it means to be made in the image of God as male and female, that we exist in a God-given hierarchy rooted in a fundamental spiritual equality both before sin entered into the world and after we are redeemed. 
Now, sin can and does mar and distort those relationships, and those distortions produce real pain, and they produce real damage, and they often create real conundrums where your two choices seem to be either bad or worse, and real sin is involved, and God will judge the sin. Now, let me hesitate, not not hesitate, let me hasten, rather, to add that this is how it is to be among the people of God. Whatever the world does or doesn't want to do, that's the world's problem. But among the people of God, one of the things that is to mark us out is that our marital relationships in the restoration of things that Christ is bringing about as he is saving us and transforming us is to be marriages that work, that are beautiful, that are marked by the relationships as God commanded that they be. In other words, the answer to those problems doesn't lie in the various flattenings and inversions of things which are angrily demanded by the revolutionary forces in our society. That will only make things worse. Now, there are lots of voices speaking on these things, and they have been speaking for quite a long time. And I just want to close with a story. It's a somewhat comical, but it's a true story. Um, uh, my encounter with, with some of these people who were sort of the vanguard of some of these revolutionary forces. It, I, I lived, uh, went to the University of Missouri, which is in Columbia, Missouri, and it's a, a college town. It's got three colleges there. When I lived there, it was a city of 60,000. And then during, during school, uh, it would swell to over 100,000. So there was a lot of young people there and a lot of alternative thinking there, even in my day. And I can remember I worked uh, for, at, at this place called Bennett's Northside Conoco. I was a, a record driver and a mechanic, a light mechanic. And one day I come into work at four o'clock and my boss says, hands me the keys to the record. And he says, I want you to drive to this rest area on the other side of St. Louis in Illinois. I knew where that was. And pick up this VW, air, this old VW microbus. Now we had worked on this VW microbus and the people that owned it had paid for it, and they had driven it to Paducah, Kentucky, where it broke down again with the same problem. And so we were going to fix it under warranty. And so they had a, a, a driver come up from Paducah to this rest area just outside of St. Louis, and then I was supposed to meet him, pick up the van, and bring it to Columbia, which was about three hours away. And so I drive, I fight rush hour traffic in St. Louis, get to St. Louis right at about 5.30, go all the way through on the other side of town, and, uh, and, and I sit there for a minute, and all of a sudden this Wrecker pulls up with this VW van on it, and the driver drops it, and he looks at me and says, good luck with them, and he drives away. And I looked at the them, and what I found before me were three lesbians who were very butch, who were Wiccans or witches, who lived together in a committed threesome, and they spent their winters in a yurt, which is a kind of tent, in northern Arkansas on some land that they owned. They spent their winters making these little drums. They were performance artists. And they made these little drums, and then they went around in the summer, and they toured all these different places, giving whatever performances they gave and selling their little drums. And there was three of them. I had a single cab, one-ton Chevy Wrecker. And so, and they didn't smell very good. Bathing was apparently not on the, on the, on the list. And so we crammed four of us in the cab of this Wrecker, 
and the smell was pretty overwhelming. So I actually, I had quit smoking by then, but I started again on that trip. Right? <laughs> I was passing around here, you have one too. Let's, uh, let's make this thing smell like an ashtray, because an ashtray is better than what I'm smelling now. And for three hours, I had a captive audience with these three people. They were very interesting women. They were intelligent, they were articulate, they were kind to me, and they had all kinds of interesting ideas. One of the ideas that they had is that there should be no hierarchy in the world at all. Now you understand what I mean, I keep talking about hierarchy, maybe I better stop and define my terms. Hierarchy is where some people occupy positions of, that are higher than others, or that are in authority over others. And, and the way they put this was, nobody should have power over anyone else. And I, and, and I was like, like, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. I must know more. Well, fortunately, I had three hours with them in the front seat of this Chevy Wrecker. And I talked to them, and I asked them questions. And they had, they had really thought a lot about this, but not quite enough. I said, I said, so does that mean that a parent shouldn't have authority over a child? No. Nobody should have power over anybody else. Well, a child doesn't know what to do. How are you going to train them? They'll find their own way. I said, you know, we're sitting here right at this point. We're in the middle of nowhere. I'm, I'm driving down the highway. I could pull over and kick the three of you out of this truck and drive away, and there wouldn't be anything you could do about it. I have power over you just by this situation. And, and the, the, you could tell that these things had not quite penetrated. They hadn't really thought these things through, but they were still committed to the idea that power over was bad, that it was part of the patriarchy. You hear that word, you hear that phrase now again. Everything, all this stuff is not new. It's been floating around since the late 60s. And they just, they were fixated on this idea that if anybody had power over anybody else, that was bad. And I said, well, what if I commit a crime against you? Would you call the police? They said, sure. I said, well, then wouldn't that police officer have power over me? Oh. And you could see, trying to make the world a better place, trying to solve the real problems that come from abuses of power, they said nobody should have power. It doesn't work. But the world's still trying to do it. Loved ones, once again, this is where the world needs the church to be the church, to show by our very lives, how things are supposed to go. Not to be pale copies of the world, but to be godly. To be committed to the good as God defines it. To be committed to one another in love in such a way that even if I do have power and authority over you, I would never abuse it, but use it to care for you tenderly. And even if you are under my authority, you won't use it to undermine me or snipe at me or resist me, but you would say, here's a guy who God gave to help me. I should probably listen to him. Maybe he knows things I don't. That's how it's supposed to be in all of our relationships. That's how parents are supposed to parent their children. That's how husbands are supposed to be with their wives. That's how employers are to be 
with their employees. That's how superior military officers are to be with the people under their command. That's how the cops are supposed to be out there on the street. Every place where there's authority, it should be handled as God would have us handle it. And if we do it, and we do it right, I guarantee the world will freak all the way out. But they won't be bored with us, and they will see, some of them, the goodness of it all. Now, this week, I tried to show you that even before the fall, there was a hierarchy. Next week, we're going to talk about how things went wrong. And in particular, what happened to us as men and women when they went wrong. Because it's, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd have to be a Jungian or something like that. Because when, what we see in Adam and Eve is all of us reproduced in one way or another. Because they're our first parents and we bear their likeness. And then we're going to look at the restoration and what the restoration means. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. If I have said anything this morning that is untrue or unhelpful, cause it, Father, to be forgotten. If I have said anything good and wholesome and true, cause it to stick, Lord, and transform our hearts. It's in Jesus' name that we ask it.